I began to question it. After my bar mitzvah, I went into my rabbi and I told him that I don't think I believed in God anymore. To his credit, he took me very seriously. First thing that he really said is, in some ways, I'm glad that you're saying that because unlike a lot of people your age, you're actually engaging in this question. And he welcomed me to remain in the conversation with that physician. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Rabbi David Levinsky. He holds the Sadie Rosner Bronfman Rabbinic Chair at Temple Harshalom in Park City, Utah, where he's been since 2015. Rabbi Levinsky, thank you so much for making time today. Thank you for having me, Steve. And happy Hanukkah. Thank you. It's actually begun. In fact, we were chatting during setup. You said you'd actually have the traditional, we'd call them donuts. What's the actual name? Sufganiot is the name for it. Uh, we'd, we'd fried things, things fried in oil on Hanukkah because of the miracle of the oil. I can get a, into a little more of that later. But um, so the is- Israelis eat jelly donuts. That's their tradition. Americans tend to eat potato pancakes or latkes mm-hmm. as, the, as the traditional food. But it's a week of eating fried food, not the healthiest holiday for the heart. <laughs> um But if we use the heart as a metaphor as opposed to something that pumps blood, it's a very healthy holiday for the hearts. It keeps some tums close by during the celebration of fatty foods. Very much so. Just for a more complete introduction, as a congregational rabbi, you've served as associate rabbi at the Chicago Sinai Congregation, rabbi at the Kedem Congregation in Palo Alto, California, and rabbi of the JCC in San Francisco, heading the Taube Center for Jewish Life. And close to my heart, you got your BA in English honors at IU in Bloomington, Indiana, which is where I grew up as a kid. Absolutely. So I did my, my four years in Indiana. I'm a proud Jewisher. Uh, both of my parents are from Indiana. My dad is from Elkhart and my mom's from Fort Wayne. I'd like to ask a few questions about your personal belief experience. But real quick, just for Hanukkah, from the very basics, I heard someone once say, oh, it's the Jewish Christmas. And I thought, I, I just don't think those words go together. So could you talk about the meaning, maybe even the actual word Hanukkah, and what this observation that goes over over a week actually is? Yeah, the word Hanukkah, we, we turn it into Hanukkah in English because we don't have that ch sound in our language. The word Hanukkah comes from the Hebrew word chinuch or, or dedication or rededication that refers to a historical event where the Hasmoneans had taken over the land of Israel and a group of Jewish zealots, the Maccabees, won a military war with them and took the state of Israel back from the Hasmoneans. Um, when they went to the temple in, the, in Jerusalem, the Hasmoneans had desecrated it, and there was a process of rededication, chinuch, Hanukkah, of the temple, making it able to use the temple in Jerusalem once again. The miracle of Hanukkah, and Hanukkah is about miracles, uh, was that they only found one cruise, one container of oil. So there'd only be enough oil for one day. But nonetheless, the oil burned for eight days. A miracle happened. 
So we celebrate this holy day for eight days. And essentially, we light a candle for every night. So on the first night, we light one candle, second, two candles, second, three candles. Because we only increase in holiness. That's why we don't do it in the other order. That's basically what the holiday is. It's um, eating fried foods in honor of the oil uh, and lighting, lighting the candles. Now, as far as it being the Jewish, the Jewish Christmas, so to speak, that, that's not accurate at all. It happens about the same time of the year. So in the American setting, Jewish observance of Hanukkah has taken on some components of the American environment. One key component. In other parts of the world, like in Israel, we don't give presents on Hanukkah, mm. but we do here in America. So that's one component of the holy day that has uh, been, you know, essentially sort of taken on elements of the American environment, this sort of giving of presents. So that's probably just because the Jewish kids felt left out. So. <laughs> Very understandable. I really love that you used the word rededication. So it was a temple. It had been desecrated, the second temple here, but then was purified again. Is rededication a part of Hanukkah observance? Yeah, that's definitely a part of the spiritual message. You know, one of the things that we're we're doing here is a rededication. Now, the temple hasn't stood in Jerusalem since the year 70, and most Jews really aren't interested in bringing it back. vast majority of Jews aren't interested in bringing that form of worship back. Nonetheless, we can use that as a powerful metaphor that this is a time of year where we can rededicate ourselves to everything that religion brings to our lives, whether that be personal meaning, dedication to the building of community, dedication to being inspired to improve the world and improve the community around us. Yes, yeah, so it's a time of, of rededication. That's one of the major messages of Hanukkah. The other major message of Hanukkah would be the message of finding light in darkness, which darkest really takes time of on, the year. Exactly. It happens at the darkest time of year. If you looked out on the moon, there's a tiny little moon. So Hanukkah always begins at a time in the, in the lunar cycle. We're on a lunar calendar in Judaism, just like Islam. The time of Hanukkah begins when the moon is just a tiny little sliver and it's dark outside at night. Um, it's a dark time of year. But, you know, we can extend that metaphor, you know, the lighting of the oil and bringing light to darkness. You know, we're living in fairly dark times now with the pandemic, so that, that metaphor means, uh, means something a little, bit, a little bit different this year. It's, it's essentially saying that as religious people, when we face difficulty, when we face hard things in the world, that we have a responsibility to, the metaphor is to light one candle. One small thing that brings goodness into the world is a start. That much we can do. Um, we don't sit in the dark and feel sorry for ourselves. We light a candle. Outside the Knesset in Jerusalem, where I've, I've been lucky to be, is a great big menorah across the street, a, a wonderful symbol of the Jewish people and of faith. This is a, maybe a silly technical question, but you light one candle, the next night you light two do they burn all night or you light them for a period of prayer or observance and then blow them out till the next night? That's just a silly technical thing, but I've always wondered. Well, believe me, Judaism is a religion that loves technicalities. It's, <laughs> it's a religion that, you know, the spirituality is in the details and is in the small actions. That's very much the way that rabbinic Judaism thinks is that the, the way that we find religion is not in grand experiences, but in everyday life. And 
doing everyday life in a sort of detailed way. So uh, the question is, how detailed do you want me to get with this one? Because I can get really detailed. <laughs> um, essentially, the way that it works is we put the candles in the menorah from the right to the left, and we light them from the left to the right. On the first night of Hanukkah, you say three blessings over them, a blessing over lighting the candle itself, a blessing over the miracle, and a blessing because it's the first time we're doing it this year. So we obviously don't say that third blessing on the second night because it's not the first time we're doing it this year. So the other seven nights, you say the two blessings, the blessing for lighting the candles and the blessing for the miracle. And then you let the candles burn all the way down. It depends on the type of candles that you have. Some menorahs actually burn oil. So you can set it up so it burns for a period of time. You're not allowed to use the light to facilitate any sort of labor or work. You're supposed to luxuriate in the pleasure of the holiday. Uh, generally, what I do is I, I sit and read in the candlelight while the candles are burning so that I'm, I'm not doing any, any work, so to speak, mm. uh, during that time. So what it ends up generally being is a time when the family gathers together um, around the menorah and there's family conversation or maybe reading or things like that. It's a nice, it's a nice family moment. It sounds like you grew up in an observant home. Yeah, I grew up in, in a Reformed Jewish home. There are different varieties of Judaism. So, yeah, I did grow up in an observant Jewish home. So the, you know, the, the major holy days were observed in, in my home growing up. Was this but a holiday I, yeah. you looked forward to as, as a very young child? Yeah, it's a kid's holiday because of the, the addition of the, uh, of the presence in the American setting. You know, I don't know a kid who doesn't like presents. Nope. <laughs> um, there's another Jewish holiday, Purim which um, comes in the springtime, which involves costumes, and mm -hmm. kids love costumes. So those are two big holidays that really are especially fun when you're a kid or when you have young kids. I have one child who's 16 right now, and it's interesting to see the holiday change. It's still lovely and warm, you know, but it's nice. It's not so much about the presents. Mm. It's more about us being with him. And I've heard so many Hanukkah songs or Hanukkah, Talking about the dreidel, the top. <laughs> right. Talk to me about the dreidel and its meaning or the letters that are written on it. Exactly. It's a, this is an Eastern European tradition, probably a medieval tradition, hmm. relatively late in the game as far as Judaism goes. When you have a religion that's 3,500 years old, the medieval period is relatively <laughs> recent, right? <laughs> um, relatively, it's a game where you spin a top that has four sides, and there's a letter on each side that stands for a Hebrew phrase, Neskadol Hayasham, a great miracle happened there. Or if you're in Israel, Neskadol Hayapo, a great miracle happened here. And Israeli dreidels have a different letter than in the diaspora. It's essentially what you do is you put a bunch of chocolate coins in the center as a pot, and everybody has their turn spinning. And one of the letter means, means take half the pot. One means take all the pot, in which case everybody anties up again. One means that you put a certain number into the pot. You know, it's, it's basically a game of chance hmm. um, with, with chocolate as the prize. That's hard to beat. That is, that is, <laughs> for, for that a child is hard especially. to beat. Under Jewish law, gambling is, is not allowed. So money isn't the prize. Chocolate is the prize. <laughs> it was not long ago that the high holy days were celebrated. I'm just wondering if something like uh, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, or some of those 
Are those what you would call the holiest days of the year? It's worth just noting Hanukkah is a very minor holiday. It's only come into prominence because it happens in December. Mm. And there's this other holiday in December involving Evergreen. So Hanukkah is a very minor holiday. There's no mention of it in the Bible at all. It's a rabbinic holiday. It's later as far as things go. Mm. So so that's just worth noting, since it's one of the holidays that non-Jews tend to know. It is a minor holiday. Our major holidays happen in the autumn, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement. And it's a 10-day period of reflection where we're trying to repent and ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness, get our act together morally, get our act together individually and communally so we can move forward as a as stronger individuals and as a stronger community. You know, those are the high holy days in the autumn. The other major holidays are the three biblical pilgrimage holidays. We don't do pilgrimage anymore uh, to Jerusalem, but they used to be when the temple stood before the year 70. And those would be in order Sukkot, which people know as the Feast of Booths. And after that would be Pesach or um, Passover. Mm-hmm. And then there's Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, is how King James translates that. Those are the other three major holidays. And the rabbis have transformed them. You know, we no longer live in an agricultural society, so we don't have these agricultural pilgrimages anymore, but they've uh, transformed them into home and synagogue observance in various ways. I'm wondering if I could ask you about your early growing up years, and if you, like most children, just accepted on face value because parents and others around you told you that there was such a thing as God. Has that always just been a given for you? Have you had to do a search or your personal questioning about, do I believe in this being? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a very open religious environment. Reform Judaism is a very open form of Judaism. So I grew up with the idea of, of God in my house. And it was a given like it would be with most small children where you talk about that. It wasn't questioned by my parents. I began to question it after my bar mitzvah, which is a you know, rite of passage at the age of 13. I went into my rabbi and I, I told him that I didn't believe in, I don't think I believed in God anymore. And um, to his credit, he took me very seriously and engaged in conversation. The first thing that he really said is, What I'll say is that in some ways, I'm glad that you're saying that because unlike a lot of people your age, you're actually engaging in this question. Mm. I thought that was just an an incredibly thoughtful response on him. You know, he was basically saying, as long as the conversation is happening, you're still in the field. Even if you're disagreeing with parts of the tradition, you know, you're still in the room, you're still in the conversation. And he welcomed me to remain in the conversation with that position. Uh, That was a real great gift he had, he said to me. If he'd pushed me out of the room, would I have ended up a rabbi? I don't know, right? Well, he sounds like Uh, a very wise man. Yeah, you know, that was a, he he knew how how to respond to a teenager, so to speak. With time, you know, essentially, you know, some very real experiences that I had in life changed the way that I looked at the universe. And I started to feel that there was divinity flowing through it. Um, and that was you know, just very much out of personal experiences, not out of doctrinal beliefs mm-hmm. at all. And it didn't happen in the synagogue. <laughs> right? So it didn't happen necessarily in a religious context. 
But as a belief in God came back, then the question, well, how do I explore this? And I was fortunate enough to be born into a 3,500-year-old tradition where a lot of very smart and thoughtful people have explored all these questions. I dug in, and I was fortunate again to find you know, a really good teacher initially to guide me. Rabbi Baruch Epstein was his name. I still study with him every Wednesday morning. It essentially started this, uh, started this path. If you'd asked my parents whether they thought I was going to be a rabbi, the answer would be no. At what age did you make that leap? When I was 17, I had a really good teacher, senior year in high school, Mr. Van Dyke, not Jewish, who very much inspired me, my humanities teacher. And I was having a conversation with me, and he would do these things where he'd say these enigmatic things that would make you think about yourself. And he said, David, you are a man of words. You should be a rabbi. <laughs> I have to honestly say, I'd like never thought of it, you know? <laughs> but I really respected him. Um, and he planted a seed, essentially, which then, um, you know, a matter of five or six years later, the seed, you know, it sprouted. So there's personal observance, and you mentioned personal experiences that made you recognize or have some faith in something divine. And then the idea of becoming a rabbi, that talks about community. What is it about the community of a congregation and a synagogue that draws you there? What feeds you spiritually there, or what are you able to give spiritually that's important to you, that's meaningful? There are two elements to that. Judaism is almost impossible to do alone. It's structured that way. In order to do Jewish prayer, you need nine other people to pray with. Is that That's the, the law. The minion? Exactly. So, so Judaism, at a minimum, is a, is a very difficult religion to do alone. One could argue even it's just it's impossible to do alone. It's a communal religion, something that happens you know, with other people. So there is that experience of spiritual exploration and ritual practice. And when you have a religion that's very ritual-heavy like Judaism, the reality is that the ritual isn't always meaningful. Sometimes you're just doing it. Other times it is incredibly meaningful. But nonetheless, you're going through that process with a group of people and in conversation with them about it. So that's the one piece. A lot of people go to synagogue about a quarter Depending on the survey you look at, about a quarter to a third of Jews identify themselves as agnostic or atheist. Many of them still go to synagogue. Why? The community. Hmm. That feeling that you get of being with a set of people who are culturally like you, who are like-minded, have a similar background. They may very well still hold the ethical goals of religion, so a shared ethics shared goals about what we're trying to accomplish in the world. Is that more of a present-day connection with each other and common goals and culture? Is there also an element of connecting with the thousands of years of tradition for people in the past? Very much so. I mean, that's just an incredibly powerful thing. Last night, in our, you know, I gave a little Hanukkah message when we did our Zoom candle lighting. And I said, you know, the, the miracle of Hanukkah traditionally is the oil was only supposed to last for one day and it lasted for eight days. Another miracle of Hanukkah is that we're still lighting the oil. <laughs> it still lasted. No, it still lasted. Thousands. It didn't last eight 
days, it's lasted thousands of years. Wow. <laughs> and that's a very powerful experience with being involved in an older religion, that these things that you're doing, in some cases, are the exact same things that were done thousands of years ago. In some cases, the traditions have been modified, but are nonetheless connected to what was done thousands of years ago. And you feel yourself in a a chain like that and the shell at Kabbalah and the chain of tradition is uh, an incredibly powerful feeling. On the personal side, what are the personal observances or actions or thoughts or whatever it is you might do that keep you connected to something divine? There's an observation in a, in a particular stream of Judaism, Hasidic Judaism, founded by the Baal Shem Tov in the late 18th century. Balsham Tov was a real spiritual master. And what he emphasized was two things. One, that religion is supposed to create joy. Two, where do we find that? We find it in everyday life. That it's the small action in front of you, and doing that with the proper intentions, doing that with the proper focus on the fact that humans have the power to reveal the innate divinity in anything. We go about it the right way. So I give an example. If I light a candle two weeks ago, that doesn't mean anything. I light a candle and say three blessings over it last night. That's a holy action. Hmm. So we can take these things from the everyday, very common things, and by doing them with the right intentions, in the right way, at the right time, we transform something mundane into something holy. I find that message just in, incredibly powerful. And the goal is that it makes you happy. If you're not happy doing it, then you got to change the way you're doing it. <laughs> That's really, I think, the key lesson of rabbinic Judaism and this religion of detail. The details aren't there to drive you crazy, to make you nervous that you're doing it wrong. or The details are there to focus you on small actions in everyday life and their transformative power. Thank you. Looking forward, so we've talked about 3,000 years of tradition in the modern day, worldwide, but more particularly here, where you are, your congregation. Do you notice affection or support from other religious people, or do you feel anti-Semitism rising or staying the same, diminishing I'm just curious because we have, as they say, lived in interesting times. The answer is both. Utah as a, as a Jewish environment is a very supportive Jewish environment. There are elements of Mormon culture, the way that um, the LDS Church teaches about Jews and Judaism is, a, is very supportive of Jews and Judaism. So it's a, it's a friendly environment to be in Utah where... Church of, uh, I always have trouble saying the Church of JC and the Latter-day Saints. <laughs> I'm going to call you guys Mormons. I know that's not the official. It's clear who you're referring to. Clear <laughs> who I'm referring to, exactly. So the Mormon environment is a very supportive and friendly environment to Jews and Judaism generally. That said, there have been some real shifts in American society that we've been experiencing over just really the past few years. Although things have calmed recently, there is a real spike for a couple of years on a, you know, on a national level as far as you know, great increases in anti-Semitic events. 
most dramatic of these being the synagogue shootings. But, um, how- but, you know, as far as my work where I was really seeing this, kids in the schools were experiencing verbal harassment. And doesn't that mean that Jewish. doesn't that mean it has to come from their parents? Because how do kids know? Well, not necessarily. In a lot of cases, the parents were absolutely aghast when they found out this was happening. There was a shift that happened in American society, particularly in sort of some darker corners of the media, in which Jews started taking on a negative role and negative images of Jews were being promulgated. And kids were encountering these on their own. Hmm. Um, yeah, junior high and high school mostly. Hmm. That's really where it was happening. Absolutely. Junior high and high school, younger high school kids and junior high. Yeah, that's really the age group where this was happening. And, you know, I'm I'm in Park City. I'm in this place that's supposed to be so cosmopolitan. And, you know, it was happening here as well. So, you know, kids were encountering these ideas. You know, I think there was a period of time where the way the kids were rebelling, like in the late 60s and in the 70s, was through embracing certain um, ideas on the political left. And there was a period of time a few years ago where kids were rebelling by embracing some ideas on the political far right. And in some cases, those ideas on the political far right were were tied to anti-Semitism. And so we we definitely saw a spike there. There's, There's no doubt. That said, the Jewish experience in America since World War II is the best the Jews have ever been treated in our history. And we have the most opportunities than we've ever had in our history. So we have to understand it in context. I like hearing that there's sort of a good news aspect to this. I've read about your love for interfaith work with the Interfaith Council there in Park City, also being on the board of the International Parliament of World Religions. What do you see as the purpose of interfaith work and relationships? Or is that a way of combating either anti-Semitism or anti-anything is just to get together with people and know them? Somewhat paradoxically, I see the goal of interfaith work is strengthening the personal faith of individuals within their own religious tradition. When one encounters people of another faith, talks with them openly about their beliefs, about their practices, the result of that conversation is generally feeling stronger about who you are You refine who you are by finding out more about what another person is. And so the result is that we end up with stronger faith communities across the board. So the work that I've done in Utah has been primarily a trialogue with Jews, Muslims, and Mormons. And... The, hopefully the result is that the, the Muslims are more committed to Islam, the Jews are more committed to Judaism, and the Mormons are more committed to their faith. You know, my own personal so experience I, I, in interviewing people from so many different faiths is what you're saying, that sometimes people have an idea that, some, that there might be some sort of ecumenical, let's, let's just reduce this all to one thing we can all be part of, but that it does strengthen individual faith. And really, I find increased respect for those that I feel for people who observe their own faith. Yeah, surely at a certain level, there's an ecumenical conversation. We can talk about the things that we share. There's a shared ethical core that, you know, to a large degree, crosses all religious traditions. 
I don't know of a religious tradition that's telling people to go out and murder, for instance, right? So there's a, there's a shared ethical core um, across religious traditions, but keeping the conversation within a shared space, that's not a place of growth. Place of growth is identifying the differences. You know, so for instance, I could, I didn't do it this time, but I'll, I'll expand this conversation. You know, when I spoke about how within the Mormon religion, there's a real respect for Judaism. At the same time, there's a doctrine within Mormonism where Mormons believe that they're the true Israel. Now, unsurprisingly, Jews don't like that. <laughs> if you think about it for 0.3 seconds, right? Yes. So that's, that's a point of difference. That's the important conversation for Mormons and Jews to have with each other. Of course, in a way of understanding, mutual respect, love, but to talk about those differences. And I'm not asking someone who's Mormon to change what they believe in that conversation, but to have a greater understanding of what I believe and what I think about that position. Out of that experience, greater understanding happens. It's out of these dis the places where the traditions disagree and learning how to have a polite and kind conversation about those disagreements. That's where the real growth happens. Oh, I'd have to agree with that. Rabbi David Levinsky, you've taken time kindly to explain some details of the observance of a minor Jewish holiday. But thank you also for taking time to actually dig, I think, fairly deeply into what can make a good progress for us as believers of all different kinds in a society where we do live together. Thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. It was a pleasure, Steve. That's our time for today. Thanks to Rabbi Levinsky for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. If you enjoy the show, help spread the word by leaving a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.